You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. So we started looking into it because... The IEEE, they came out with an amended standard. Um, the standard, a whole bunch of numbers, is like 802.15.4Z. And it was said to kind of increase security of these devices. That's Roya Gordon, security research evangelist at Nozomi Networks. The research we're discussing today is titled UWB Real-Time Locating Systems, How Secure Radio Communications May Fail in Practice. You know, obviously, whenever there's new standards, we take a look at it and we notice that there's a little loophole in it where it kind of covers part of the technology or the data transmissions with these devices, but not the other part. And then digging into it further, we realize, wow, a threat actor could launch a man in the middle attack and really manipulate the information and the data and the location of things um, via these devices. So that's kind of how it all started. Well, at the core of this, when, when we're talking about these devices, these is uh, ultra-wideband devices, that's UWB and Real-Time Locating Systems, RTLS. Um, what are these devices and, and typically how do they get used? So these devices, they're used everywhere. We may not see it all the time, but um, they're used in different industries and in smart cities and buildings. Um, one of our main use cases, and we did a demo on this at Black Hat, was in a manufacturing plant. Now, the reason why um, RTLS is used is because personnel need to be tracked, equipment that's moving around need to be tracked. You know, there's different hazardous areas in those environments. So there needs to be a way to track people to make sure that they're safe. So it is kind of used as a safety thing. Now, um, ultra wideband, that radio frequency protocol is preferred because it can transmit via barriers. So, you know, Wi-Fi and all these other types if you if there's some type of barrier, if it's not line of sight, then you're not going to get the best um, location or precision. But with mm. UWB, it can transmit through equipment, through walls. So in a big plant where there's all this stuff going on, it's kind of the ideal protocol to use. So the real-time locating system, it's um, comprised of three main components. 
you have the tag that's attached to a person or a, an, a, an item. So again, that's going to be the tracking. You have anchors that are placed throughout various parts of the facility. And then you have the server. The anchors, they transmit all of this data back into the server. So that's the system. And then the ultra wideband is the protocol, the radio frequency that, that's being used. So just for my own understanding here, I mean, is it basically that the, the, the tag, the transmitter that's on someone or something, you know, that's sending out some kind of ping and then the anchors receive that ping and then report back to the server as to where they're, I guess, triangulating where that uh, tag is? Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly okay. what goes on. So let's dig into the security elements here. I mean, what security is claimed to uh, be in these systems? And then how did you all go about uh, exploring whether that was actually the case? Yeah, so pretty much the amendment, it secures the um, transmission of data between the tag and the anchor. So, you know, everyone could say, okay, that's good, we're covered. But when that data is transmitted to a server, that's when everything is just vulnerable. That's where a man-in-the-middle attack can be launched. And that's where that, regardless of whether the data between the tag and the anchor is secure or not, you get to see everything as it's being transmitted to the server. So once we realized where the loophole was, we decided to purchase the equipment and do the testing ourselves. So we have our lab in Mendrizio, Switzerland, and that's where we do all of our security research. Um, we have demos there, everything you can think of. So we purchased some devices and we started testing it out ourselves on our own production line demo. And this is where it got really interesting at Black Hat because we were able to create a geofencing zone around this demo and have a person wearing the tag go close to the production line, look at the system, see that there's notifications. So we didn't just do like a research on it. We actually tested it out. And we were able to launch a man-in-the-middle attack and manipulate the tags and everything like that. And I, I do want to use um, some of the three examples that we used in our presentation that could kind of yeah. help piece this all together. So the first one is um, contact tracing for COVID-19. You know, that mm -hmm. was a huge thing. And, you know, in any kind of work environment, maybe it's important to track which employees are COVID positive that are in contact with others and alert is generated. You know, we understand that concept. But when we launched the attack, so did what the attacker would do, it was able to manipulate the alerting so you could be in contact with someone who is COVID positive and you won't get alerted. Or you could be in contact with someone that doesn't have COVID, but then an alert is generated saying that you've been in contact with this. And the question is, you know, why would a threat actor want to do this? Why do they care about who has COVID and who doesn't? But if you're able to kind of fabricate a, a percentage of the workforce having COVID and needing to call out, you know, that's a lack of resources to be able to run a facility in a, pr a productive type of way. So right. that was kind of how it started. But then we took it a, a level up to say, okay, how can this be a real problem that impacts safety? Because we know manufacturing plans, mostly industrial controls, um, mostly industrial facilities, safety is a big issue. Mm -hmm. So we were able to show that if a worker is conducting maintenance on a piece of machinery that's supposed to be down, um, maybe the threat actor goes in manipulates the tag, shows that the worker has left that hazardous area, and that could prompt the machinery to automatically restart 
while someone is in close proximity while doing active maintenance. So now it becomes a safety issue where someone could be harmed, their life in danger. And that was also another use case that we were able to demonstrate. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Yeah, and one of the things you highlighted was that uh, these systems often get used used in hospitals with patients. I, I can imagine some some real uh, safety issues there as well. So yes, using it in hospitals or just anywhere where you're locating people or assets, it could be used to misplace where critical patients are, critical equipment that you need to you need for surgery, anything that could have a tag associated with the threat actor can go in and either misplace things. Or it can actually track items that it, you know, a threat actor wants to steal. Um, this could be used for reconnaissance. Maybe they just want to know what's going on in a hospital so that they can launch a broader attack afterwards. So this being used in hospitals, especially with the COVID-19, because there's a lot of that testing going on. So if there are systems that aren't properly tracking or keeping track of who has COVID and who doesn't, especially in a hospital, you know, that's kind of a big deal. I know that um, for medical procedures, there's mandatory COVID testing before you can even get operated on. So, um, yeah, it's it's a pretty big deal. We focused on uh, those three use cases, the contact tracing, locating and targeting people and assets, and then the geofencing. So the white paper goes into a lot of the technical detail here, and uh, dare I say there is a lot of math in there that is over my head, but I'm I'm glad uh, you and your colleagues uh, have a deep understanding of this stuff, and for folks who are interested, it's all there. But just looking at the bigger picture of this sort of thing, of being able to go in and do this, you know, have a man-in-the-middle attack on a system like this, why is this something that we should be concerned about? Are, do you think there are real-world cases here where bad actors could take advantage of this? Absolutely, Dave. So I mentioned that we started off just kind of buying a smaller RTLS, you know, just to do this research, but now we're taking it a level up, right? Airports use this, right? There's different brands, different models, but now we're looking at what are the broader implications of a threat actor intercepting location data in airports or we looked at some brands, and I, I don't want to call anyone out, but we looked at some brands, we looked at where they're deployed, and we're talking about, you know, airplanes, we're talking about military. So it started off really small with just us noticing a loophole in a standard, and now it's getting really big to, okay, if the standard isn't really covering or securing all parts of the system, then what else can we do? So we're hoping within the next year to kind of highlight this as a bigger and broader problem. 
And then there actually has been like bigger companies that that's reached out to us because of this research, because they're like, okay, well, how do we help secure this for our end users? So, and that's why I'm happy that we're able to be on this podcast to talk about the impact of this research. But yeah, it, it is a pretty big deal. If you look at it from contact tracing or moving tags around, it's like, okay, whatever, who cares? But if, you know, there are missing critical assets or, you know, um, think of pipelines, think of nuclear facilities, you know, if you're not able to track um, where people are and where things are, I mean, it, it, the event could be catastrophic. And we right, don't know right. the rhyme or reason why threat actors do these things, but they do it for fun. They do it to cause damage, you know, depending on the threat actor especially if they're nation state, you know, they're trying to take things down. They're trying to cause harm. So regardless of what their motive is, um, it, they shouldn't be able to have access to this type of system. And it, I mean, this is, this is the kind of system that you need to have confidence in because as, as you say, there's, there are safety issues here. Yeah. And even though um, geofencing, it's not, it's RTLS, they're not the only systems that use geofencing, but uh, just as an example, I have an Oculus and mm. I don't know if you have one too, but when you put that thing on, you have to create a geofencing zone or area that you stay within. So as you're in this VR world, you know, if you get too close to something, okay, that's going to be outside of this geofencing area. Um, if you step outside, that could be some stairs. You could walk into a sharp right, object. Right, 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 right into a wall. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it relatable to the everyday person. But if you look at it like that, it's like, okay, we know the importance of creating geofencing zones. And now taking that and putting that in a dangerous environment um, where things can be manipulated. Yeah, it, it is kind of a big deal. So as you were looking at this and, and uh, examining the different brands, you know, again, we don't have to call anybody out or name any names, but was there a, a spectrum of attention to this? Were, were different brands, you know, taking a, a different level of care here? Can, if I'm someone shopping around for this, is it possible for me to invest in a system that is more secure than, than one of the competitors? So here's the thing. When the standard, the amendment to this IEEE standard came out, it still, it kind of put the responsibility of securing these devices up to the vendor. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it didn't really secure protocols. It didn't really secure it in the broader sense. Um, but it kind of said, hey, if you're the vendor, you're developing this you need to make sure it's secure, but there was really no way, there was no guidance on how to secure this, right? And I get it, we trust vendors, but a lot of the times they're focused on the quality of the product. And if they're doing updates, it's like implementing new features. Um, and that's why we have security research teams, right? Because maybe they don't have the capacity to try to find vulnerabilities in their own product, but it kind of creates this gap where now if there's no standard, there's no know-how, there's no no policy kind of guiding these vendors into how to secure this communication, no one's going to do it, or no one even knows that it's a problem. Um, the team, we scrubbed the internet, we tried to find, is there any research out there talking about this? And there wasn't. So mm -hmm. that's why we focused on this, because it's a loophole that no one's paying attention to, and it's wide open for threat actors. And we actually released mitigations. Um, so we we tied this into our white paper. There's links there. But we're just like, hey, here's a mitigation that we created on GitHub. Here are additional, 
recommendations, but at the end of the day, it's up to the vendor to kind of bake that into their product. And hopefully, again, as this gets more publicity, we've already been working with some vendors that are interested in in learning how we figured this out and what to do. But yeah, there's not a lot of research or guidance for how to secure these. So before we we go in the time we have left, beyond uh, publishing the white paper on this, um, you all did a presentation on this, and, and my understanding is it was very well received. Yes, it was. So I'm so happy that my company allows me to bring my creativity into these presentations. Um, so I have this idea. I know how to do the Rubik's Cube, by the way. Mm. And it's just kind of this fun thing I know how to do, but do I do anything with it? No, I just, I bring my cube on a flight. I, you know, tinker around with it. And I was like, you know what? Why don't we figure out a way to tie this into the presentation somehow? So they were game. And what we did, we started off the presentation. I I gave the introduction about, you know, the importance of these systems and, you know, where they're used and the loopholes we found in the amendment. So while I'm doing that, I'm playing with the cube, I'm mixing it up. And then I say that the challenge to, for all of this security to be put on the vendor can be puzzling and challenging. And I'm holding up the cube while I'm saying that. And then, you know, we continue throughout the conversation. Um, I'm just kind of messing around with the cube. I don't think people really know what I'm doing. But as I close out the presentation, you know, I'm starting, people are starting to see that I'm piecing it together and it's like almost solved. And then at the end, I'm like, you know, yeah, this can be challenging and puzzling. And then I do this one last move and I'm like, but it can be done. And I hold up the cube that's completed. And I didn't think a lot of people caught that. But afterwards, people, they were like, wait, we really liked how you tied that together. So to me, that was the funnest part, um, being able to just take like a cool trick that I've been doing for years and and kind of helping tie it together um, into an important message to such a technical audience. Yeah, we should get you together with uh, Jen Easterly from CISA and have a race. Oh, no, I've seen her do it like blindfolded <laughs> behind her back. There's no composition there. It takes Fair enough. two and a half minutes. I can't compete. Okay, all right. Well, that's better than me. I, I can't do it at all. <laughs> all right. Well, Roya Gordon, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Our thanks to Roya Gordon from Nozomi Networks for joining us. The research is titled UWB Real-Time Locating Systems, How Secure Radio Communications May Fail in Practice. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.